welcome back to the podcast. Um, I have no idea what episode number this is, and I guess I don't give a shit, so we're going to continue on. Um, today, I've got my old friend, Mr. Jeremy Fish, with me. Uh, so psyched we can finally do this. We just opened a show at Black Buck Gallery in Denver last night, uh, a two-man show, and pretty fucking epic, really great turnout, really good sell-through. Um, fucking feeling the high. So, uh, Jeremy, thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having me, dude. Nice to be back in Colorado. Spend some time with you while you're still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm only here for another few days. It's been five years. I'm sure it was, I'm (laughs) sure it was a fun five years. I love this area. No, it was, it was. But I think it's time to move on, try something else. Yeah. It's all good. So, uh... I don't know if you've heard any of the other episodes, but I usually just start with asking people how they grew up and where. So go ahead and just start there for me. Uh, I was born in Albany, New York, and then uh, my family moved all over the Northeast. And when I was eight, my sister and my mom and I relocated to Saratoga Springs. Where's that? Uh, Like 25 miles north of Albany, more or less. And uh, it's actually the midpoint between Montreal and Manhattan. Oh. Uh, it's the home of uh, the oldest continuous running race track, horse racing track in the oh, United neat. States, and the oldest uh, continuous running skate park in New York State. Oh, that's cool. Um, but yeah, my mom had friends from college there, and it's one of those cities that was built up a lot by mob money back in the day, and uh, oh. so also supposed to be like the San Pellegrino of the so United States. The mob, it's like really famous for spring water. Was the mob going to Montreal? It was the stop. Like, it was the stop-off point during Prohibition, for sure. Where like there's there's tons of these freestanding brick garages uh, that like apparently back in the day you just drive in from Montreal with the hooch, park in this garage, chill out, gamble, stay in Saratoga for a hot minute, and then bring the rest of it into the New York. Wow. Like I said, Saratoga just happens to be the midpoint between Manhattan and Montreal, more or less. Yeah. And a rad place to stop over if you're smuggling hooch. Apparently. Wow. Yeah. Neat. Neat. Were you doing artwork as a kid? Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. It's one of the only things I was ever any good at, like in school. Um, yeah. I always had great art teachers. Saratoga Springs had a really good public school system, and I just had a ton of really super, super friendly, super uh, caring art teachers as a kid, you know, just a lucky, lucky set of public school teachers. Cool. That's cool. And were you, like, drawing and stuff at home? Yeah. Um, yeah, a ton. Because it's wintry <laughs> in yeah. that part of the country, it's like there's a certain amount of indoor time that you have to take for granted as a kid, and yeah. uh, drawing's just one of those things that doesn't cost any money. And Sure. No, I mean, we have that in common, because I grew up nearby, mm-hmm. in upstate New York, too, and I remember those winters, you know, and my parents kept me busy by putting markers and Lincoln logs and Legos and whatever in front of me to keep me busy, yeah. keep my mouth shut, you know. <laughs> and I think because, you know, my mom's family especially was super crafty. Uh, my grandfather was a master woodworker, and my grandmother ran or ran with a bunch of ladies that were in this group, group called Home Bureau, which was a group of women that did, like, handicrafts and knitting and oh, uh, sewing okay. and fabric projects. Yeah. Um, so my sister and I were really influenced around that. My mom sews and made everything for us when we were little. That's funny. My mom does, too. And she I think a lot of that notes. stems from shitloads of time indoors in the winter, you know, yeah. like... Not that people in California and warmer climates don't do that sort of thing, but, like, growing up, I found myself and my family doing a lot more stuff like that when it was just, like, you know, cold and windy outside, staying and get some stuff done. And for me, those are the memories as a kid where I recognized that I was taking it seriously. Like, me and my neighbor homies that would sit around and draw all afternoon and, like, talk to each other about what looked cool and what didn't. 
mm-hmm. like when you first start thinking about it analytically, I guess, and it's not just like a random time passing thing as a kid. Um, yeah. I'd say that was elementary school probably. No, I would say the same thing. I feel like it was my Dungeons and Dragons buddies that would be like, oh, actually, you know, that monster looks more like this. Like, look at the fiend folio. Oh, yeah, like little details. Like, yeah, his tail doesn't look like how I drew it. Okay, good looking out, you know. Did you do any of that? Mostly, I think the things I remember drawing the most as a kid that I, like, talked to other, like, trucks, like, semi-trucks and cars. It was really big in the beginning, like building vehicles by making squares of things and then trying to put like exhaust holes in it and you know like really basic semi trucks I was really into drawing and do you remember the Lee J Ames how to draw books mm-hmm. and we're like how to draw 50 vehicles and it would start with a rectangle and then it would dimensionalize that and then start with some ellipses and then it would show you the steps to make a finished breaking drawing. down the shapes of a vehicle yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I had all of them Mine were just crummy. <laughs> they were just bad drawings were of cars. Were they kids showing you stuff? Uh, were you just kind of figuring it out? I think it was just not caring. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the beauty of that in age where even though we were all drawing together, I think like everybody made something weird and that each was unique to each yeah. his own, you know? And uh, a lot of kids in my neighborhood were really good at drawing that just, you know, we all appreciated that we did it differently. And yeah. probably went from cars and trucks to drawing like boom boxes and like trying to draw like funny things on the cardboard in our breakdance basements yeah that kind of thing yeah that hit you too that wave of hip-hop yeah definitely i was only two hours or two and a half hours north and like yeah we had a lot of djs that came to saratoga because there were a lot of nightclubs because of the track Uh, and also like a really big a lot of private schools and state colleges and shit in the area uh, we had this guy named the pig panther dj pink panther he used to come (laughs) up from new york and dj in saratoga and he was a big influence there because that was kind of the first you know like when you still heard stuff through the radio and yeah, uh, I was little enough that my friend's older brothers just happened to be a good ear to something like that really young yeah. and it was like the first music I bought the first music I paid attention to and definitely something that I just have a lot of memories of drawing radios for some reason as a kid oh. yeah uh, I guess I did too there were certain things like that that were like hip hop standards kind of thing yeah like things that like, like much like drawing cars and trucks things you can't own because you're a kid you know what yeah. I mean like I wanted a big giant ass radio so I just drew them cause, yeah. yeah I guess that's right I guess I drew a lot of guns <laughs> yeah, exactly. Things you just couldn't get your hands on, so you made your own. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Well, when did uh, skateboarding come into the picture? I mean, I know we have that in common, too. It all kind of unfolded, like, some one summer after the next summer. Like, it was breakdancing for a really long time. Then it was BMX bikes for a couple summers. But I, Same for that's me. an expensive sport, and I like... Yeah, for me, it was BMX before hip-hop. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I was riding BMX as a little guy. And then I remember hip-hop came. And I was still riding, I guess I was still riding a BMX bike, and then skateboarding just popped hard, you know. Probably yeah. right around the time I discovered hip-hop, actually. You know, I remember listening to Public Enemy while I would be skating a homie's mini ramp, you know. Yeah, I guess that's what I mean. It was like, it felt like it was one summer. Like, I'd say fifth yeah. and sixth grade, we were kind of into, like, breakdancing a bit more and hip-hop, and then, you know, also yeah. riding bikes to get around, yeah. but I never had a super nice BMX bike. And then I'd say summer of seventh grade, uh, going into eighth grade was when I got way more into skate. Like I had a skateboard, but I got way more into it as I entered junior high. And like yeah. I said, it was just kind of like sequential summers of rad shit. Yeah. Like breakdancing sort of ran its course. Then I got into BMX, but couldn't really afford it. And yeah. skateboarding hit, and that was one of those like you know you could have a paper route or you could be a dishwasher yeah. and like get your shit the, the stuff that it took to go out and do that and have fun. Yeah. Uh, and it was another scene where I grew up where there's a lot of older kids that were into it and like. 
some of the older kids were super, super progressive and were already bringing ramps around and like building jump ramps and leaving them places where we could all use them. And yeah. there was a subculture building. And I think a lot of it was because it was a college town. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of had one of those melting pots of the things around it and the horse yeah. racing track and a bunch of little seedy, weird nightlife things going on. I want to go visit there. It you should, actually. It is very, very. At wow. one time in the 80s, it was in the Guinness Book for most bars per capita. Wow. Because <laughs> like, there's this street where it's just, you know, from when it was, you know, from when it was super, super horse track town. Yeah. That was just literally a row of bars and nothing else. Sure. And at some point in the late 80s, my friend's family opened a skate shop, like, dead in the middle of it. Oh, wow. So we all grew up kind of hanging out and, like, long before we drank. Yeah. Like, just watching the effects of heavy drinking on this yeah. Caroline Street, which is the name wow. of the block with all these bars. That sounds fun. It was. And, you, you know, you don't realize that when you're a kid. You're just like, here's where I'm growing up. Yeah. But in hindsight, when I moved away and looked back, I was like, damn, I got lucky as hell. Like, huh. that part of upstate New York, it was a great place to be. Yeah. You're just kind of street skating? Mm-hmm. Well, and no. You had some uh, ramps around and stuff. Well, and eventually, and, and, yeah, and eventually, in the late 80s, that family that uh, did that skate shop... Uh, one of the kids that uh, the family who owned it, he rode for Skull Skates, and there were some guys in Albany uh, that had sponsors and like guys that were getting kind of well known in the area. Yeah. And then the skate park got built in the public, uh, like in the public recreational field. Yeah, it's pinched right between the baseball and the football field. That's how they do it. And it lasted and lasted, and some money got dumped, and a vert ramp got built, and uh, wow. yeah, it's it's literally been there longer than any continuous running skate park in the state of New York. Like it's super old huh. and still there, and they've since built a bowl and like. Are there any, any like, uh, pros that we would know, names that came from that area? Uh, Johnny Solareff was like a sponsored yeah. dam who went on to start Element Skateboards, yeah. which is kind of a gigantic entity and sure. a super rad guy and an old friend Element of mine. still dope. Jeff Toma uh, was one of the first big names from the area. He was okay. sponsored by Alva and yeah. was just like one of the most wonderful human beings and like yeah. saved people from a burning grocery store and wow. was just kind of a legendary ollied over a tennis court kind of hometown hero oh yeah sort of a dude oh, uh, tennis court sick. man yeah uh, Carl Schultz rolled for Walker back in the day a guy named Chase Lustick also rode for Walker but as far as contemporary pros uh, Kenny Reed came okay. from there yeah. and I would say he had probably the most successful the professional career park. it's just like I feel like there's always going to be that one dude that just rules it well, and there's, these are all, because it's day. like a small scene in the 80s and 90s, these are guys from like all over the Capital District. Yeah. I'd say from that town. Right. Not specifically, but, but no. that's the thing. But yeah. it was that, 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 that place fed into the whole, sure. when they did that like extreme game stuff in the 90s, yeah. where they do like regional contests to send people off to this like, yeah. you know, giant skate event. Uh, yeah. Our park was the regional park for like all the way up into Canada. Like oh, people came from okay. all over the Northeast to get into that uh, yeah. extreme games thing and it was just a really fun place to grow up, and we were really, 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 really lucky to have that. Yeah. Did you have backyard pools at all? Uh, a little bit. Lake George yeah. is like a big vacation community, just uh-huh. like gently up the freeway from Saratoga and Albany where I grew up. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of it was built like 50s, 60s, and there's yeah. a lot of like cool old pools and stuff that's still intact that seasonally yeah. uh, people would go and scout out. But Sure. Yeah, yeah I just wonder if some places you think, oh, there's no pools. And what do you know? There's no, there is for sure. Yeah. <laughs> there was a giant one that we all went to in the 80s and 90s called Burden Lake that was part of like a golf course country club from like, you know, way the fuck back that had been closed and grown over yeah and these dudes went and cleaned it out and uh, sorry about that i got it i just gotta tighten that down tighten this side too. there it goes the burden lake pool was the name of it and it uh it wound up in a bunch of like it was in thrasher and guys came through there on tour in the 90s okay. and yeah but it was just this super huge like golf course public swimming pool size thing 
Yeah. What kind of boards were you riding? Do you remember? Um, I mean, I feel like board graphics are still something that, like, you do and I do. Like, oh, yeah. We're still, like, we, I mean, we just did two decks for the show. No, definitely, definitely. You know, uh, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's one of those things you took really seriously. I just had like, to think, like, how far back would I start telling the story? I'd say my first favorite brand was Santa Cruz. Yeah. And to the power of what, the like, Jim why Phillips. I wanted to do it. Yeah, like, yeah. one of the best dudes to ever decorate a skateboard as a kid. To me, that was just like, when you looked at a wall, that was the guy who had it figured out the most. It was like the most narrative. I felt like it told me the most about the guy whose name was on there. It like, I don't know, it was like a language too. Like each board interrelated to each other. You could tell it was all done by one hand or later to find out a school of guys that drew like that hand. Yeah. I don't know, that I think was the first thing that really got me engaged in it. Yeah. And the, the, the visual language of it as much as actually going and doing it. Because we had a lot of winter. We sat in the skate shop in the dead of winter in storms and shit with nothing to do but stare at it all. Um, and much like that indoor time that you spend creating or messing around to kill time, studying it is also kind of part of that. Absolutely. And sitting around in the shop that your friend works at and yeah. they I let you lurk and watch video, let you watch videos and stare yeah. at the stickers and just yeah. kind of study it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the Santa Cruz ones. Which, which riders? Did you have like a Kendall and a Grasso and a... My first really nice board, uh, I got a Klaus grab key with one of those exploding clocks that was like my first like super nice board. I got a Santa Cruz jammer that I bought okay. used from a kid that was just a very yeah. basic like split up text of the word jammer oh, with yeah. some barbed wire behind it. It was just that black was and white. Era just before they really got loose. Yeah. Yeah. I bought a complete from a kid down the street from my house for eight bucks with some birthday money and that was the yeah. whole and it was sick. The yeah. jammer was tight. And when it I wrote it so long that I refinished it and like sanded it down and redid it. Wow. Just cause, you know I guess I did when you're that same. age. I was just learning to ride around on it. I didn't like. Right. Right. That's cool. What, uh, what was your high school experience like? Was it like easy or difficult or It was easy, yeah. Yeah. I was spoiled kind of cruise through it it was a big understand things get good grades um i did i got okay grades my mom yeah. was a english teacher and a librarian and my older sister is super smart and uh i just grew up with the two of them mostly and i didn't get i wasn't as good in school as either of them but i did pretty well and excelled in art and english and just you know skateboarding mostly and um i went to a really big high school that's like a melting pot for that part of the state um, our high school was like, I graduated with like 700 kids. So it was like a school that dumped lots of kids from Your smaller towns. Class was 700, yeah. 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 Was yeah. Our school was big. Yeah. Uh, Saratoga Springs public high school was a really great place. Had a super good art department. Um, yeah. a lot of cool opportunities. There was an advertising class and a lot of things that like to take in high school was pretty Did you rad. Take that class? Mm -hmm, for sure. What'd you learn in that class? Uh, simple shit that you just don't think about as a kid, branding and what logos are and just, you know, like looking at products differently and more thinking somebody that, made that, you know? So it was more about, let's say the psychology of it or the, the culture of it versus like applicate applications, you know what I'm saying? Like, were they teaching you how to lay out advertising for magazines and things? No, we, we did yeah. basic things like draw your own logo and little projects like yeah. that, but like in a lot of things in school, you know how it isn't always what you were there to learn. It was what you got out of it. And uh, there's this funny older kid. It was one of those art departments where you could be in ninth grade and be taking or eighth grade and be taking a class with a kid who was a senior. Mm. Uh, and so I was really young in a, in a classroom full of much older kids. And at that age, that kind of difference makes a big deal. And yeah. what went on to be one of my best friends, his older brothers, was in my class. Mm. 
this guy Chuck Gockell, and he's just a really funny, he's a super funny man. And we, we clicked immediately, and like I just learned a lot from him. He was just a funny-ass dude who could also draw really well and was like uh-huh. good in the class. And uh, he and his younger brother became like two of my closest friends. And strangely enough, the takeaway from advertising class is more like, like when we bring, when I brought it up, I just started thinking about this yeah. like funny dude and saying funny shit in the class. Sure. And, um, I was really interested in being funny in high school and junior high. It was just like... I, I was class clown in my yearbook. It was like something. Really? Like, yeah, yeah. Literally I was very, class clown I was very yearbook. outgoing, both in junior high and and uh, high school. Just like I like making people laugh. I like yeah. the high of it. No, I do too. I, yeah, no. It's, I think a sense of humor is important, and I love being around people that crack jokes all the time. And they're because it can. I mean, to me, it's the, it shows that they're paying attention to the conversation for sure, and they're engaged. And it's, you know, it's also like, yeah, we moved around a lot as a kid, like I said, until my parents split and we moved to Saratoga. We Mm. changed schools quite frequently. Mm. And it's a good way to, like, break the ice and figure out who the funny kids are right away. Oh, for sure. um, Did did, uh, your sense of humor get you out of trouble in fighting and stuff? Do you ever have to deal with bullies and shit? Uh, A little bit, and yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, because we moved to a new neighborhood and everybody wants to, like, push around the new kid in the neighborhood kind of stuff. But I definitely tried to make jokes and get my way out of it. I did, too. Yeah. Yeah, make them look stupid. I was never tough, and I don't like fighting, so it's like, yeah, if I couldn't, if I couldn't make jokes about it, I'd wait till they were done beating me up and try and make a joke so it didn't happen again, you know? Yeah, 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 that's cool. So, did you end up going to college from high school? Um, yeah, I went to a junior college of Albany, which was just okay. like forty minutes up the road, and yeah. um, I went to my uh, school in Albuquerque for four years on a scholarship. Yeah, yeah. I majored in painting and. Thought, oh. I, thought I knew what I was doing and had a really good time there. They, it was a great uh, two-year school with a really good art department. and huh. uh, There I did really well. For the first time in my life there, I actually got good grades like in everything because yeah. even though I had some academic classes, they weren't super demanding. And yeah. I guess because I was there and had taken out loans and was like, you know, I had to actually think about choices I was making for the first time in a long did time. You, did you have to work while you were going to school? Uh, I did when I moved to San Francisco. Yeah, but I'm saying like when you were in like junior college, you were just no my my dad. I took out loans for part of it, and my dad helped me with the rest of it. That's I think that's the usual case. Because my mom was a teacher when my parents split, that was her like biggest uh, like stamp in the disagreement, like in the divorce agreement. Like education for me and my sister was really a big deal. Yeah, and now my sister was brilliant. She went on to go to law school and became the youngest one of the youngest assistant DAs in New York State at one time. Wow. Uh, I just sort of by default had to go to college because my mom had fought so hard for this, like my dad to help out with it. Sure. Uh, but I really didn't want to go. Like I wasn't, yeah. uh, I wasn't so good at art that I thought that was something. I mean, I liked it. Yeah. And if I had to go for something, that was what I was going to do. Yeah. But I didn't see this like, you know, it, like a stepping stone to me becoming something. It was like, I it was either. default because I, my mom was so, there was no, I wasn't not going to school. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was that big of a deal to her that. Yeah. As a teacher, no, my parents the whole time were like, "No, you're going to college." Yeah, I, I had even gotten some inheritance money from a great aunt, and my dad invested it, and that's what I ended up uh, using for school. But because I got a scholarship, every semester I was able to keep the scholarship. I was able to take the cash equivalent out of my scholarship fund and use it, or my tuition fund, I should say, and use it forever for what the, I wanted. So I traveled and stuff. Went to London. Went to well, you know, that's as much of an education as you can oh, get. Oh, no, that's the thing. Yeah, no, I, I was, yeah, I was feeling that. <laughs> it worked out well. But at a certain point after 
four years in the architecture program, I got uh, asked to work at Think Skateboards in 93 and then bounced. You know, my teachers were like, yeah, go to California and have fun, like do your thing, you know. Um, but I think that you ended up in San Francisco, we were saying in 94, mm -hmm. is that right? So yeah. tell me how that ended up happening. Uh, I was going to that junior college in Albany and I finished up and, you know, at that point I had done well enough that I thought, you know, I should continue with this education and finish it, but I don't want to stay in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. At that age, I was skateboarding more than I was making art or taking anything else that seriously. I had worked at that skate park through high school. How old were you, like 20? Uh, I was 19 when okay. I finished uh, at the Junior College okay. of Albany. Okay. And like I said, I was skateboarding super, super, not in a, like a professional capacity or anything, just like I was at that age where I was probably as good at it as I was ever going to be, and I was genuinely doing it every day and passionately. And right So there. my choice to move to San Francisco was like I got into several schools, but the San Francisco Art, Art Institute had Barry McGee on the cover of the catalog that year. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, and that was a hard man. sell. <laughs> uh, he had also done a cover for Slap Magazine, which, you know, sort of tied the two together. Any, uh, I think any skateboarder at the time would have been familiar with Barry McGee, who was also known as Twist, for those listening. If you, you don't know, that's the same person. Um, but, yeah, he was in the Skate Magazines a bunch um, right around then. And that, I think that's what I was seeing, too, right before I moved to San Francisco. Like underworld element ads or some shit like that. Yep. Yeah, that's rad. I had always, um, I mean, you know, I'd been reading Thrasher since I was a kid in the in the era where you read that thing like a Bible and yeah. studied it like stained your fingers. Seemed like a fake place. <laughs> you know what I mean? They painted this picture of San Francisco that was almost fake, and so when it came time to look at schools, it was. I got away with it because my dad had gotten released from the Navy there, and he had really fond memories of it. And when I discussed that as one of the options, he was like, you know. I loved it. I loved it there. Go for it. Yeah. And I think he also knew at that age I needed to get as far away as I possibly could to try and reinvent myself and good just dad. not yeah, yeah. not be stuck where it, good parent and not like I had such a bad deal. Like I said, my hometown was awesome. And when I went out to San Francisco, I thought I'll go here, finish my education, probably move back home, get back to working in restaurants to pay this shit off. But yeah. it'll be fun while it lasts, kind of. Yeah. No, my parents were the same way when I was like, I think I want to go to San Francisco and quit school. And they were like, okay, yeah, you should probably do that. It's time. You need to get the hell out of Albuquerque. Well, but you've been offered a job. I mean, that was a smart reason to go, dude. They'd no, it was, but I was on scholarship fourth year in architecture school. I would have had one more year, and then I could have gone for the qualification and the internship stuff. You know, I would have had a... A really solid career and even to this day I'm vastly interested in architecture you know but uh, yeah I think they must have seen what my professors saw too and were just like go for that you know I mean my professors really told me architecture is something you do when you're old and the best architects are the people that have been able to travel the world and see the great works themselves and walk through them so then when they're designing, they have this frame of reference. Like, I remember the hallway in the Louvre, like that central hall. It's impressive under that pyramid, you know. But you can look at that in video and magazines and whatnot, but until you go there, you, you know, it's a feeling. Architecture is something you should experience. It's not, you know, it's like sculpture more. But I think, whether or, not, I think whether or not you got that piece of paper, the influence of that architectural education is up to me. It's always been super apparent in the way you draw. 
Like no, I feel like you know, sure. it's definitely built the backbone to how accurate and sim- you know, simplified all your forms are. And well, and that's why I was asking you about that advertising class because I did learn the old school engineering techniques of hand drawing things. I know how to make working drawings that are to scale and uh, you know all the different kinds of working perspective drawings, and I know the importance of those things. You know, your working drawings. Um, could be the difference between somebody's life and death if a building collapses and they trace it back to you fucking up on your drawings and they just followed your instructions, you're fucked. You know? Yeah. Like, from what I understand, insurance for architects is even worse than insurance for doctors because there's just so many people that could be hurt by what you do. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a big fucking deal. And that's why, too, I think there's rarely single people that are architects now now it's whole firms and they have whole teams with like a hundred people that specialize in little things to make sure that every little thing is worked out and just right you know that's why i still don't buy the story of the world trade center we studied that in college i know the forces that that building was able to withstand i did the math there's no way that building would fail that way by a puncture in one side of it by an airplane there's no way <laughs> so first thing I thought when I saw what happened at 9-11 was just like wait a minute no that's not how that works that's a professional detonation <laughs> you ever seen the movie Koyana Skatsi no it was a series of three movies they're like uh, it's basically a lot of time lapse and pictures of things but there's no dialogue and it's just music um, they're really beautiful but one of them has a whole uh, sequence of professional building detonations, you know, and how they implode and they don't affect any of the buildings around them. So I'd seen stuff like that, you know. It's just a weird side note, man. That that whole 9-11 thing, I I never bought that. It doesn't make any sense to me as as an educated engineer and architect. Well, exactly, and the influence that that uh, architectural education gave you to see things like that with that kind of perspective. Question things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I always felt like it was some sort of weird conspiracy, too, that people didn't speak out more about that, you know, just the engineering part of that. I mean, I think young people now can access information that go into the details of what happened. Yeah. I was actually even staying in an apartment right next to the, the towers one week before I crazy could've, i could have been uh, yeah oh it's crazy anyway <laughs> so <laughs> san francisco so you ended up uh what school did you end up going to there the art institute that's uh, um, the good one i think yeah it's the old is one. that the one and that's the one that barry went to yeah and a lot of people didn't kr go there indeed reminisce uh yeah and bob licky indeed Indeed. <laughs> also, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, Picasso, Picasso taught there for a minute. Ansel Gee, Adams built really? the photo department. Diego Rivera taught there. I mean, yeah. it is has there, a... Is there some Diego Rivera stuff on the wall? Yeah, there's a giant, uh, huge yeah. public fresco that's in their main gallery. I love that, that place. It's, I mean... It's an amazing destination to climb that damn hill to get to it. And the same architect as City Hall and Coit Tower. That I didn't know. Mm-hmm. That's his best work compared to those two. Ah, you know, different, I think, with different different intent. Different. Yeah, no, the campus is amazing. I've had sex a few times above the. On the back wall of, like, the outdoor auditorium thing. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) 
This had the best view of the city. It's incredible. And there, and there's never anybody up there. And one of my there's a, uh, some students with a six pack like huddled down below the wall or whatever. Also, one of the best places to go on the Fourth of July. Like a yes. crazy, crazy fireworks display. I've gone there a few times on the Fourth of July. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, push my bike up there with some friends. I try and hike up there every year. Yeah. Me. Yeah, you're right. That's some insider SF knowledge right there. The back of the auditorium. And just a piece of architecture there. you should check out. I mean, really, yeah, like a that inner courtyard super so wonderful pretty. structure. Yeah, I've, I had friends, a lot of different friends that um, went to school there. I guess when you were even going to school there, I was visiting like before we met. And I think even when I first heard about you and the SPB stuff, um, was through some graffiti friends and they already knew that you went to the Art Institute. Yeah. I don't even know if they knew you by face, but the, the rumor was out. You know? Bigfoot went there too at the same time. Did he? Mm-hmm. That's how we and Scott met. Like. Wow. Yep. God, that's cool. Yeah. What year was that? Uh, 94. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 94. I was living at Bush and Powell. Yeah. Right next door. No, to I, I could Soul. I could tell because your stickers were all over Bush. I lived at like several. I was at six two six Bush and nine six nine Bush. Which stickers was it? The ones where I was putting the porno pictures and tagging on those? Or was mm-hmm. it just no, this like was a long time. This, this is like nine, the, the year after you got there. Yeah, just like just six those little uh, giant stickers, rectangle ones. Yeah. Oh, everybody was doing stickers though. That mm-hmm. was just like daytime action slaps. Yeah, but Bush Street was a particularly like fun place to live at that time. Well, yeah, because Blast lived up there. Soap and Felon lived up there. I'm trying to think who else. There was a few people. We kind of called it the Tender Knob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember the the Knob Hill uh, naked guy dancing place was right next door. <laughs> yeah, 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 see yeah. Those guys. And they always had really funny shit written on the uh, marquee, you know? Absolutely. Like <laughs> subtle but not so subtle fucking Absolutely. slogans. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking San Francisco. Yeah, Where and exactly, you? like a real eye-opener when you first get there to have something like that oh, on your sure, block. Sure. Where did you live when you got there? Uh, like I said, when I first got there, uh, I stayed on a couple friends' couches, but I think the first room I rented was 626 Bush. And then shortly after Bush that... Bush and what? Mm. What would that be? Mason? Taylor? Yeah, somewhere Just in there. Just a little and bit further. I went to 969 Bush, and that was Jones and uh, Jones and Bush. But before that, 626, so yeah, oh, yeah. a few blocks away. Yeah. But the first one was real gnarly and small, and then the next one was like, like super, actually super nice apartment that I shared with a ton of friends, as everybody did back then. Yeah, that's how I started out. Yeah. Like, because I knew the, I was talking to the sales guy at Think, because I was ordering boards from my local shop in Albuquerque, told them their graphics sucked. And I could do better. He was like, send, send drawings. I sent the drawings. And then I got offered the job. And the sales guy was like, you can move into our place on McAllister Street between Central and Lyon. And uh, I think there was five of us there. And we were all skateboarders. You know, it was yeah. pretty funny. And we all had like different ways to get to the same place, which was the Think Warehouse. <laughs> it was just a weird thing in the morning. How'd like, you get there? I would take the uh, McAllister bus all the way downtown to third and market and then or maybe first and market and then transfer to the 15th third mm-hmm. some people would take the Divisadero bus all yeah, the that's way what down I there to like third and I'd take, blue, I'd take and the 24 transfer. to third and then if I, I'd either skate from there to work yeah. 
Or if it was like pouring rain or something, I'd fucking... Yeah. Depending on the time of day. And usually going home, somebody would give me a ride part way, and then I'd take some sort of bus. I did that bus. too. I did that too a lot. You're right. Just because it was, at that time, like, Palou, like going to wait for the bus for the 24 on 3rd and Palou at like 4 or 5 o'clock could be fucking genuinely gnarly depending well, on the day. It's funny you bring that up because, yeah, that's exactly what I was just... That was my logic. Like, I yeah. ain't trying to stand at 3rd and Palou... Ever. That's why I said it. I would go. <laughs> like I would go if I had my board and like just get off and oh. skate down the hill to work. So know? many people got jacked for their boards. No, for sure. I mean, we had to tell people if they were coming to the warehouse, don't sit all the way in the back of the bus. Mm-hmm. You got to sit more towards the front because if you sit in the back and you're alone, they're gonna surround you and they're gonna take your shit. And that would happen all the time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they'd be coming down to get a new board and. They'd need everything. <laughs> they got all of it taken. Fortunately, when I worked in the print shop, it was like a you know pretty industrial gig, and like I just tried to stay looking real minimal and simple, and like just yeah. it was a commute to a pretty fucking burly industrial job. Yeah. And I just tried to keep my head down, and I was fucking. That's thr- the thing. I was though. like thrilled to have that fucking gig. You know, it was like a dream come true. What I felt like once I was up and over the hill after Palou, because it's like they're in alphabetical yeah. order through there, right? So. P for Palou, and then S, and then T, U, V, and then there was Y was Yosemite, mm-hmm. right? That's, and that's where the I worked. One we had to where print time was. Down. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There was a McDonald's so there. So you're down a little bit further. Do you remember the, there was a fast food restaurant that was right there at Yosemite and 3rd Street. And McDonald's. famous. No, it was like a family-owned place. I think that was before the McDonald's, and they, had, they were famous for their fish sandwich. I used to go there all the time, and everybody would be like, why do you go there? That place is so gross. But I loved it. I'd get a fish sandwich and fries and a milkshake for lunch, and I'd get a donut to take back to the warehouse with me. That's right. I think by the time I worked out there, it must have become a McDonald's, because I don't remember it being something else. I think it turns into a McDonald's. Yeah, I, I wish I could remember that name of that place. I'd love to do a like a historical drawing of it because I ate there so much. That's it was rad. so greasy, awesome, you know. God damn, that was fun. So you're at the Art Institute. How how long of a program is that? I had finished two years in Albany and I had an associate's degree, so I only needed to do two years at the Art Institute. Ah, that's why I asked. I thought yeah. so. And somewhere in the middle of it. And then um, you get a BA or a mm-hmm. BAFA or whatever. And I shifted my major. I started out as a painter, uh-huh. but I didn't really feel like I was getting much out of it. And uh, at the time, I started drawing more than I was painting. And um, I had done a lot of screen printing, like done it in high school, done it for a guy in my neighborhood as a kid. Like yeah. I knew it had an industrial application. Uh-huh. And my dad was really beating down on me like, hey, whatever you do, like while you're going there, just do something where you can go and get a job. Like whatever it is, learn some sort of skill set within it. Yeah. And at the time, I was into screen printing anyway. I had done it to make stuff for my gang, and like I'd I done it. A dude in my neighborhood as a kid had the contract for Ben and Jerry's, oh, wow. and so we had screen printed shirts as kids for this dude, and like it was something I just knew how to do and liked. Yeah, me um, too. And so I went into printmaking, started really getting into that, and they had a they had a screen printing class, and that just kind of became my major, and I stayed with that. While in there, I met a kid in my class, this guy Brian Brooks who got me a job uh, in an incredible wallpaper factory in the Mission, 23rd and Harrison. Oh, that's right. Uh, Winfield, Winfield wallpaper design. And wallpaper. it was fucking incredible experience. Yeah. 
I was already, my mom had, uh, was really, the, the town I grew up in is full of old Victorians, full of old rad wallpaper, and it was something I had, you know, always been sort of around me, but hadn't really ever studied it and how it was built and how they separated it to print it. And uh, so that was almost like a second education and experience that came in really handy as far as like getting a job in the skateboard industry. And well, it was I more industrial experience than what I had. I assume that you were printing the wallpaper pre-digital? Oh, hell yeah. So you were doing, were they huge screens? It was uh, giant six to eight foot wide screens and they Holy were printed shit. on these these huge like long tables um, yeah. I mean, with, with rolling with rolling uh, dryers that have motors yeah. yeah and you and another person pull like big long squeegees like one two three pull right and then you pick up the screen and it's done in a peg system where you yeah. print every other eight feet okay the rolling dryer comes back and forth and then you replace the eight feet okay. and then you roll that section up and wow. do the next you know full wow. tables length yeah. And we not only printed it, but we also, a lot of the, the, the company by the time I had worked there had gone from being one of the biggest wallpaper manufacturers in the world to being a company that basically printed repair jobs for like wealthy people and casinos and mansions and whatever, anywhere that had a bunch of wallpaper where somebody threw up on it or something yeah. exploded or whatever. Yeah. So they'd give us a scrap of this like cigarette smoke crusted 80 year old wallpaper and they're like, redo this. So we'd not only have to draw the damask and make it repeat, but we also had to print like layers of crud over it to like make it look like people had smoked on it and like oh, wow. age it basically. Damn. It was an incredible experience and a cool ass job, but toxic as fuck. And probably wow. took like a decade off my wow. lifespan. Like yeah. it was really, really, really foul. That's and eventually, eventually like it era. it was violating so many um, you know, environmental laws that eventually the place closed and is now condos and yeah. I think about it every time I pass by there. I'm just yeah. like, damn, it should glow. Did you do any of the flocked ones? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. something I remember about San Francisco in particular. It has like a, the designs themselves are like a felt on a paper. Mm -hmm. And when you touch it, oh, it's just so pleasing. Yeah, you know, and super it, foul to make. Oh, that. We oh, printed that. all, we also did a lot of printing on really textured surfaces, you know, like, like almost like corduroy fabrics and shit like oh, that. Oh, wow. Not fabrics, but like it yeah. felt like a fabric-backed corduroy. The, the fabric yeah. it was like so, like puffy and fuzzy, and that shit's really hard to print on and pretty nasty. Where was that? Was it in the city? Yeah, it was on Twenty yeah. Third and Harrison. That's exactly. It was like right in the middle of the mission. Twenty Third and Harrison. I can kind of picture that corner. Huh? It's like we could walk to Far. Right we could walk to Farlito for lunch. You know? Yes, yeah, like, that really close. Yeah. To Farlito. Yeah, yeah. Huh? It was actually a dope neighborhood for lunch. <laughs> Best well, thing about the, the job. Is great. Other I mean, than that's, the, a, that's something we always talked about in the tattoo business. You know, if a friend is talking about opening a shop, and we're always like, "Yo, you better think about your lunch options." You know, before you sign a lease on a place. It's a, it's a true story. You know, know what I mean? <laughs> that can be the worst. To be in a city with as many great options something. for lunch as San Francisco, but be stuck somewhere like Third and Yosemite back in the day to know that like lunch, you've got about five things you could eat, and you've eaten them all a thousand times. Yeah. No, I remember that about working at Everlasting Divisadero and what, like Fulton? Yeah. Yeah, there was a few places there. And it, I mean, I, I would just end up getting a slice of pizza from across the street. I mean, you the, can't fuck with Eddie's. That shit's awesome. Uh, but you can only oh, eat Oh, that you know. place was good. I was, still, you know, that, still. That and the pizza same place was never that great, but it was fine. The diner is super the, good Eddie's, and the people still work there. Still there. Hell yeah. And the, as a matter is of fact, really? the last time I ate there, which hadn't been, it probably hadn't eaten there in 10 years. 
and it looked exactly the same inside. The same people were working there, and Green the lady. Family? Yeah, and the lady yeah. was like, "Hey, how are you? Nice to see you again. She Been forever." Yeah, like she, I just she thought, still like, remember my first name if I walked in there. She's an encyclopedia of customers, that's for sure. Yeah, and she's always dipped out in fresh clothes, and she drives a nice car. That's a good little family. And they have great French toast. That place is so dope because, like, I remember a black family owned it back in the day because it's like soul food. And the Korean family bought it, and they didn't change the menu at all. At all. The prices, nothing. And where they got everything from, and it just stayed the same. Is their menu still the same? Yeah, and still pretty reasonable, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was cheap. You know why I went there? It was in a real ad. Like Tommy and Jim were sitting there at the Does bar the eating like back in the, the day, and I remember being like, I ate there because there were stickers on everything, and like That's you know, exactly what I mean? what I was it was like a, like a twenty five or thirty year old collection of skateboard stickers. All yeah. it's got like a a patina of past skateboard and companies. One of those places where all the mugs are different. It's like mm-hmm. you know, yeah, they have a collection of odd mugs that folks have left behind. Give me the the clinking titty one, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I'd always sit at this particular place in the count at the counter just yeah. about every day at about eleven o'clock before I'd start my shift at Everlasting. My mechanic was across the street from there, Precision Auto, oh, yeah. which is just like yeah, on the next yeah, block on the opposite. Yeah. This guy John and his mm-hmm. family like lovingly took care of every stupid old car I ever owned. Did you ever go upstairs from there? Or it might have been the upstairs. I went to a kink party, like a, not kink.com, but it was like pre that, but it was like porno people that I knew. And there was upstairs from there, and the whole floor was covered with this like squishy rubber stuff that you could just mop up the floor. And I was just like, wow, what goes on in here? And the thing got that on the floor, holy shit. It was so funny. But there was just all these like freaky, kinky people like getting weird and stuff. But they were all like overweight and like Dungeons and Dragons people. It was a weird scene. Yeah. But I just remember it was about <laughs> You know, it's still there, man. It's still funky as shit. And I don't yeah. care what anybody says. There's still rooms with rubber floors and like. Oh, there's plenty. You know, it's. Uh... In people's homes. Oh, yeah. For sure. As a matter of fact, let's be fair. That spot you were at could very well still be above my mechanic. I have no it idea. Could be. Yeah, I hope yeah. it is. No, I dated a girl that worked for uh, Good Vibrations. The um, woman-owned sex toy. Dakota uh, is the lady that owned it. I have a good-ass Good Vibrations story. Let's hear it. All right. Uh, at some point, I had made a handful of vinyl toys, and somebody that was project managing was in some factory where vinyl toys happened. And I was talking to the dude, and he's like, man, you're not going to believe it. Like, there's a giant mountain of dildos next to me right now. And I was like, get the fuck out. And he's like, yeah, it's all, you know, yeah. obviously made in the same factories. And a weird light bulb went off, and my next vinyl toy was this little dude named Barry the Beaver, who was a very simplistic, like, minimally designed, vibrating friend who just happened to be, like, this little beaver guy wearing little oh underpants, God, standing on a tree stump. <laughs> because someone had planted that flag and been yeah. like, yeah, it all comes from the same place. Yeah. Fast forward, the thing comes out. It was immediately met with a lot of negative, uh, well, on forum boards and stuff, people were like, hey, this is inappropriate to have in my toy store. I'm mad that there was no red flag that said what this was. And I packaged it without a single mention of, you know, using it for anything other than having it on display and having a little vibrating friend. Like, I wasn't marketing it as anything more than what it was, but... There was, you know... That's how they used to market exa- it all. Well, and let's... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Personal ma- massage unit. I didn't even go there. I just was yeah. like, it's a friend. You know yeah. what I mean? You do, do whatever you want with a friend of yours. Smart, so anyway, fast forward. It, it got a lot of bad feedback. I was kind of panicked and felt bad. 
Like, cause there was, there was some like, you know, this shouldn't be in toy stores kind of inappropriate accusations. All of a sudden, this wonderful woman that, uh, at the time either owned or managed good vibrations like the chain yeah. got involved and went on these forum boards and was like, you're ignorant. Like this thing has been tested. It's wonderful. It's safe. And we're buying up all of them and selling wow. them in our stores and having a huge party to celebrate. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And they like, oh, a woman saved my life and just genuinely changed the whole perception of the thing no. and really lifted up the skirt to everybody on those forum boards was just being a little you know, gently concerned about it. And rightfully so. Like, I didn't want my toy to be on Megan's list, but sure. you know, when you put it in that sort of light and frame it out like that, as opposed to taking it being like, no, this is a rad piece of art. We're going to celebrate it. Um, but yeah, way, way to go. Good vibrations. Thanks for the help. No. Way to save an otherwise good idea. I thought that just got framed up weird. Something that I've realized, you know, is that, you know, we, we lived in San, we used to do, it, it attracts a different kind of person. And, like, in the 90s, I feel like the people that were moving to San Francisco, kind of as a subtext to it, was that they were open to sexual experimentation. And I've noticed that a lot of, a lot of us from San Francisco, we've had a lot more variation, I think, than a lot of people in other places in the country, you know? And it's a strange thing. I feel like, you know, like even the rubber floor, like we kind of laugh. But where the mm. fuck else? I mean, you know, yeah. we laugh because, yeah, it's actually real. Like there's actually some interesting things. And I think that, you know, you know, we might even be like, oh, this will just be some funny little beaver toy. And then the people in the rest of the country like fucking lose their shit. Yeah. Like, no, and it was definitely. Oh, wait a minute. Like, well, why do you, why do you have these crazy hangups about this? This should be a fun thing that, you know, achieves orgasms. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing, I think. Well, and exactly. And I think being in San Francisco as long oh. as I had. Perhaps if I, you know, I, I think that you're right. Like the, the influence that city had on me and the things that it had turned me on to. Like when I was working at print time out of college and we had a lot of outside clients, like other than just the skate industry, yeah. especially when, you know, during the winter when skateboarding got a little slow, sure. we did all the products for Bear Magazine. I remember that. And man, like that was a real, I had to, I was the sales guy. Like I had Bear to go there and magazine. deliver them. Mm, please. Okay. Well, we should just say. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, it's not uh, Kodiaks yeah. and Grizzlies. It's. Yeah. A kind of uh, gay guy that is usually bearded. They usually, um, I tattooed lots of bears. Yeah. Um, they don't scene. like to wear deodorant. They like to smell like men and they really like to kind of reek. And generally they're kind of bigger and bubbly and fun. And there's like the younger guys they call cubs, I think, right? <laughs> <laughs> San Francisco yeah. shit, man. They, they had a t-shirt that had a slogan on it that just said, naked, hairy, homo, smut. It yes. was basically the description oh, that I always take away from that. And at the time, the, the gentleman that ran it, who was an incredibly personable, like super nice business dude, his name was Bear Dog Hoffman. Nice. And he was, if I remember correctly, he was like a Harvard-educated, like super, super brilliant businessman who ran this huge empire for this kind of subculture that yep. at that age... I had seen a lot of crazy shit in San Francisco. I'd stumbled onto the Folsom Street Fair. Oh, I yeah. didn't not go to the Castro on Halloween. Like, Absolutely. you know, living there was very eye-opening and did turn you on to stuff you'd never thought about. But this was one of those ones I had never really encountered. Yeah. And it was a super fucking impressive way to meet on something like that because, you know, I was taking orders and delivering T-shirts to a place that on the surface was a little intimidating. But the dudes were wicked nice to me. And comparatively with a lot of business I ran sh shirts for in San Francisco... 
these dudes were on top of their game, you know, like they sold a ton of shirts. They were very like dead up about the way they ran it. They had a really good profit margin and they were super easy to work with. So again, I think like you're saying, like there's certain things that were built into the fabric for me in the 90s and even still as a part of living in San Francisco that you just take for granted. And I had lived there just long enough at that age to forget that the whole rest of the world is pretty conservative about masturbating with a little beaver toy. Sure. And it, it's uh, something I'm proud of that the city yeah. had influenced me that much by that age that like, right. you know, like I said, <laughs> could have been a disaster, turned out to be something I celebrate. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the Folsom Street Fair for a second. <laughs> <laughs> We're already laughing. Yeah. That's funny. So for people that don't know, that's basically the gay leather fair, right? Mm-hmm. So you'll see guys wearing big leather boots and maybe just chaps with no underwear, no shirt, just cruising around. You're going to see some dicks out. You might see some guys getting whipped. It gets pretty nuts. It gets fucking nuts. And it's just out in the open, on the street. It's blocked off. They don't... That's the thing. I don't know if there's... Is there a formal prohibition to anyone under 18? You know, I mean, there's gates and stuff. I've just never even seen anybody with kids even consider going into it. I personally have never seen children there. I only went, like, uh, I went the year I moved to San Francisco. Okay. Because, you know, there's that series of street fairs. Yes. That go on all summer. Oh, I'd yeah. already been to a couple. Yeah. And I saw this one from a distance. I was skating around South sure. of Market. And at that point, I thought, oh, shit, more like chicken Whatever. on a stick and, like, yeah. you know, like weird bands playing. Live music. Uh, maybe an outdoor beer. So I, like, sure. skated up to it. Uh, and suddenly immediately realized I was no longer in Kansas, you know, there's no. a lot of, back then there weren't any, if I remember correctly, I don't think there were gates. I think I just rolled up on it and no, suddenly found thing. myself that's in this neighborhood where I was like, wait, there was like it's naked dudes. Shot. I don't think I, in my life at, at that age, I had just moved here. I don't think yeah. I'd ever been anywhere where there was just naked dudes rolling around. Like, right. It was well, a shock. That's what I'm it was a shock. But I think the big, <laughs> the biggest shock was that, uh, it was crazy. no one, it wasn't creepy. No one ran up on me. No one cared no, if I was, was there. Like that. I felt very comfortable no. walking around. There was also, I felt like, it, at, like I wasn't the only person there who was just spectating to check it out. Like, it was, again, one of those signs that San Francisco was this beautiful, accepting melting pot of, like, it wasn't inclusive. It wasn't just a bunch of naked we dudes in the street that dancing. were like, hey, you get out of here. You know, like, yeah. it was much like the rest of the city, yeah. a beautiful melting pot and people who had meshed together in this, right. like, you know, yeah. weird street festival. And, yeah. again, I haven't been since, so I don't know, yeah. like, I don't know what it's like these days. But at that time and at that age, it left know. a big impression on I'd me because, be I don't know, it was not what I expected. It might be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I traditionally would do LSD with uh, my friends and we would go down there with a group of girls and we would just go dancing, you know, just have a good time. And then when we get tired, we'd like walk up to like, uh, what's the park in the mission? Dolores Park and just hang out and trip out, you know, and just come down. I got a good fulsome story, actually, a random one. uh, So I'm going to say like 2000, I don't know six, eight-ish. I had a show in Manhattan in New York and Chelsea in the Arts District. And my dad had come from Pittsburgh to see it, which almost had never happened before. And I was, oh. real, I was real pumped to meet up with him. Cool. So, you know, we both got in and met up and we were, we'd made plans to like meet up at a bar in the neighborhood close to the gallery. Okay. My dad had got up a little earlier and hit me up and was like, hey, you know, doesn't look like this is going down. And I was like, what? And he's like, I'm not sure what the fuck is up, but like I went ahead of time to see where the gallery was and there's a street full of naked dudes. 
<laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Like, what are you talking? This is New York. Like, this isn't, this isn't, you know, it's in Chelsea, obviously, but like, yeah. in the, you know, 2008, six, yeah. somewhere in there. So anyway, we go and we meet up and sure enough, there's a street full of naked dudes. Mm-hmm. And by now it has started to rain. So it's a street full of naked dudes, mostly wearing clear ponchos that someone had thoughtfully provided. So you could still be out being naked, but not get a cold or whatever. And, and like the, it was, it was an event. It was like, this one was closed off. Yeah. And you know, the gallery that I had to visit was like in the middle of it. Oh my God. And my dad, who's just hyper conservative, cool ass yeah. old dude from Pittsburgh, who was sure. genuinely freaked out, yeah. was so proud of his son and his stupid art show that he actually marched through it. Nice. Uh, but yeah, it my turns folks would. And in the end, in the end, my buddy and I, like, as we were leaving, figured out that it was the first annual Folsom Street East. And we were somehow super proud. Because we were like, what? That's a San Francisco event that has like migrated here just to freak out my dad. You know, like the timing couldn't have been better. And I tried to explain to my dad with like a, you know, hey, this is like a San Francisco based event. And he was like, you know, where the hell do you live and what the hell's going on? That's funny. But yeah, it was an awesome memory. So I want to kind of come back a little bit. Like... (coughs) So you're going to the Art Institute, you're doing your thing, you're taking more printmaking kind of courses. Are you producing work to show in galleries at that point, or is that kind of after you finish school? Like, because that's the thing, I kind of have always known you as part of that little world too, like the fecal face community and whatnot. How did you get involved in all that? I was having shows even like towards the end of school uh, and definitely when I got out of school. Like right as school ended, I got a job at Print Time, which is the print shop that I was talking about that prints all the stuff for the Northern California skateboard brands and outside clients when we needed more work. Um, because I had just gotten out of school and was like super pumped to have gotten this job, but my degree wasn't in commercial art. Like I got a degree in fine art printmaking. So, and because I worked in a place that had the option to continue to print my own stuff or have my fine art prints made commercially or just have the access to continue printing, uh, I did keep pushing my stuff and I did put my work in a lot of art shows and I continued to paint and make weird little sculptures and have weird little shows around the city. Like um, at that time I worked really hard at print time from like nine to five or nine to seven or whatever it was and then went home and uh, had a little studio space in the apartment and just like painted and drew as much as I could and put it in little shows and just like yeah. kind of hustled it Where out there. Some of those little shows early on. Do you remember? You know, the first like solo show I had at that time uh, was like a little uh, tattoo shop that was on Guerrero just past 16th, huh. like between 15th and 16th on uh, oh. on Guerrero. Yeah. It was a, it, it, it became was a tattoo shop. Gross. I think when I yeah, but it wasn't that then. It wasn't when I had then. the art show there, okay. it was something else entirely, yeah. but it became a tattoo shop that stayed there forever. And when I, I think of it whenever I drive by, like that's the first place I ever oh, like no, got I out of school and had a show there. Yeah, yeah. And that did oh. good and a lot of stuff sold and a lot of people like came and um, Yeah. Then I had you know, it just went from there to whatever the spot similar to it was some sure. cafes in Oakland and like cafes in the city and anywhere like I put it into cafes around the city and shitty galleries for a good yeah. sound. Not shitty, like smaller. No, ones I that were struggling, ones that came and went. You know what I mean? Like oh, I do. Ones where I, I just had one thing and a group of other... Like, it wasn't the kind of thing where I started showing art and did really well right away at all. Yeah. Mostly it was terrible. Yeah. Like, and I look back on it and I'm happy that it was terrible. Like, it was fun. 
and I was no. making it for that reason, you know? Like, I kind of had this yeah. debt of gratitude. Like, I came out here to do this. I got this degree. That got me this job. I'm getting to work around skateboard graphics. At that point, I wasn't anywhere near doing them. I was still, like, it was like grad school. You know, like, I was learning more yeah. about how to draw technically by being in the print shop and studying, like, your work and Todd Francis's work and, like, all these morning breath and the guys that were contributing to the graphics that I was overseeing and having printed, I wasn't just studying the printing thing. I already knew how to do that. I was studying how they get that drawn that well, how they use those colors to build that. Like grad school for me process. was studying the process and also the yeah. illustration yeah. because that's nothing I had taken at all. Oh, sure. All the painting and drawing classes I had taken up and were all fine art. It wasn't like right. other than the advertising in, in uh, high school and some graphic design courses in junior college. Yeah. The influence I took out here was really like more of a fine arts background and then and went from that fine arts background I feel like and went directly to print time from the Art Institute. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was this mix of like this fine arts education that was great, yeah. but that wasn't going to get me the job I wanted. Right. So then I went and worked at print time, which was uh, my friend Dustin got me that job and yeah. uh, Fausto and you know, Eric Swenson. And it was like dream come true kind of job. In a previous episode of the podcast, I spoke with my old friend Ben Lovejoy and he worked at print time. And then Fausto was like, oh, you know, the computer, we need help over here at this new company. We need a computer guy. And that's how he parlayed. But it was that's how I parlayed. That's that's what's so funny. Is cycle that, you cycle know, had to like go to New York. And the when he did screen shop was like the hub. You know, mm -hmm. and that, and generally those guys didn't look far. You know, if you could apply for those jobs, but they're just gonna pick somebody that's just nearby that they know already, that's already on payroll, and just switch their role. And also, you have the, the like a lot of people came into those jobs and those art departments that had beautiful vision and incredible Absolutely. artistic talent. But there's a learning curve where you had to apply that to the formula that was their manufacturing. I had to. You had to change your artwork to get it to screen print well, and that's a different process. And their specific process of screen printing on curved wood was in and of itself an art. Absolutely. So I think that to have a guy that comes from that to go into the art departments, I didn't have a very strong commercial art. I wasn't great at illustration, but I did understand the final product and like how yeah. it needed to print to and I'd say that was the only reason I got the job, you know, like right. I was never as good at illustration as the gentleman that had done those jobs before me, but I had come in through the back door because I knew how to finish it, you know, like, yeah. and I think the Which education of screen important. printing and the background of the wallpaper job and all the way back to the guy printing Ben and Jerry's shirts in my neighborhood as a exactly. kid, uh, that was like what got me in that room. And then when I was in the room, I looked at all the guys whose art I admired and tried to figure out how to do my version of that. So it's a culmination of like yeah. everybody that was illustrating for them at that time and their technique and the materials they used and you know a lot of that stuff was drawn by hand shot on a stat camera turned into a film then that film was laid down and you cut your separations to fit that film and everybody did that differently yes. and eventually you know some of it went to output houses and the prints were done eventually slowly they were done more digitally and right. um, but I came in at the time where it was all done with you know stat cameras and ruby lith that's when I was there and that's a science like that's so, a whole different way yeah, of designing it was exactly you know because I was at Think from October of 93 until November of 97. Um, so how and when did you end up getting over there? Less than a year after you left when Jay and Doug were running, I think. Right, okay. Or maybe there was somebody in between. Were any of my drawings still in the Everywhere. Because <laughs> like, yeah, I didn't own any of that. As a matter so of fact. I couldn't take any of it with me. It was in those flat files. Even a lot of their stuff, they, or your stuff, they were still running. Mostly t-shirts and things like that. Oh, sure. The t-shirt graphics they kept rolling. But because, like I said, 
to, to back it up, when I got when I got to the city and because I was mainly there to skateboard and kind of to go to art school, yeah. you had a section of the deluxe store that was just your stuff, which right. was how I was introduced to your work and right. where I started really, you know, like my friends all hung out there and I had a friend that worked there and I just kind of, much to the way I did it in high school, with Jim Phillips and all, I just kind of stood there being like, this shit is distinct. Man, this is a guy who's branded himself <laughs> at the same time that this company's stuff looks way better than it used to. Yeah. And they were starting to have one of the best teams they ever had. And like, there was just this moment where Think was uh, really slaughtering and your work had a lot to do with that moment. Yeah. And I, I mostly I skated so. like blank boards from Skates on Hate. I really love this company named called Beer City from I Milwaukee City. that I, I used to order. My friends and I used to all yeah. chip in and order in bulk. Yeah. Um, but when I didn't, if I had to get a board and went to Deluxe to pay full price, I bought Think. That's and it, cool. it didn't have as much to do as, with the history of the brand, even though later I learned it and loved it. Yeah. At that time, it had to do with the way that you'd drawn it. And the fact that to me, I was as interested, much like Jim Phillips, it had an identity to it. It wasn't just yeah. board graphics for the brand. Yeah. The stylistic way that you'd presented it to me, it was as much your story as it was theirs. And yeah. uh, that's something that when I got in the print shop, dude, they had drawers full of your stuff. Yeah, and I would just kind of sure. like look at you know the way yeah. that it was separated and how your black really kind of led the whole direction of it yeah. and comparatively with somebody like Todd who also drew with line but a lot of the time he did that with brushes and like you know just very very different Everybody techniques different but you way. both kind of needed to get to the end result and then you know guys like Jay and Doug who came in between where it was like very designy yep. Jay had a more of a design direction than I was familiar with at sure. that time sure. I had no background in it yep and I yeah, really took did. took a lot from Jason and like how like his just right. design sensibilities and stuff. Yeah. Just because he was also a super nice guy, right. and if I'd ask him questions that weren't just about making his job print well, yeah. he was very forthcoming with like, "Oh, I do it like this, and it looks like that." And right. Jay's well, a super good dude. Are, yeah, no, even, for sure. Even Everybody. When that, I got there in '93. Like I had never cut ruby lifts, and I had. Uh, uh, ben Lovejoy had just told me, I'll just lie about that stuff. I can teach you that like first day you're here. And he did. And it was all good. It wasn't rocket science. Mm -mm. <laughs> but again, because it was hand done, everyone did it differently. Like, yeah. And I think for me, it was the education of being there to see that it's not like I had this way of doing it. And then there's these other ways of doing it. And that's kind of the beauty of it. Like you can get a lot of different results with yeah. these materials that not to say that now digitally you can't too. But for me at that yeah, time and that age, so much more now, I think really. blending it as a fine art medium with now I was getting this commercial background and it was being fed towards my biggest love in life, you know, like yeah. these two art forms I knew about and it was all going towards the greater good of skateboarding at yeah. an age where that's mostly what I did when I wasn't at that job. And yeah. it was like, you know, about as good as life could get in your early 20s. Uh, how long did you end up staying at Think? Uh, through the whole thing, I was there for the, I like, I worked at print time for a lot of years and then right. I went from there to, I think it was a better part of a decade under the, okay. oh, uh, Swenson and Vitello empire and yeah. man, and I loved every minute. I also worked for slap at that time. I had a little wow. two page column that they gave me, uh, yeah. called the big stupid. That was like this monthly that. illustration that, yeah. uh, that was kind of the first way my stuff, Yeah. because think, totally you know, I didn't have my name on any of that stuff at Think. Those were board graphics for a brand. I would put my name on it and then get bombed. Yeah. I knew, I knew, I knew that by the time, the I, had been, I had been told that by the time I worked Don't there, that that was not what you were doing, and so I didn't. And <laughs> when I got the thing, it slapped. That was the first thing I'd ever put my name on that, like, wound uh, up out in the world, you know? Yeah. And it, it started like Mark and uh, the dudes at Slap were like, man, you should probably get an email address because like people contact email. us and like want to communicate with you. So I was yeah. like, oh, sick. So Mark Whiteley like pushed me to get an email address. And then I started hearing from people about this weird thing in the magazine. And yeah. through that, I started to get little shows. And then 
started to get weird shows like outside the country and like yes i'd say it was through this thing graphics but more the slap stuff that had my name on it that like people started to invite me to things and i would say that was probably like i like i said i owe keith and whiteley and the whole empire of, the, of those guys not just the education of being in the print shop yeah. but also the vehicle to get my stuff out to the world yeah i mean they, i feel like the big thing was they hired us with no experience really <laughs> No. They just they yeah. trusted that we would figure it out and we're good people. They knew us and liked us. And, you know, it was, yeah. I think there's a lesson to be learned there for people listening. Definitely. Yeah. You know, it's like the opportunities may arise in the weirdest ways that you wouldn't have thought of, you know. Yeah. I'd say if I had one to leave behind, it was that, like, listen, I came to San Francisco to get a college education from, like, one of the most reputable fine arts institutions on earth and like took out all these loans and spent a decade paying them back. But to me, the more valuable education that I came away with from the time that I was in San Francisco was getting the job in the skateboard industry and commercial printing, learning from all these guys that I considered to be masters as to like how to develop my own technique as if they were professors. So I think like practical experience, you know, like going and getting a job or going and getting, and this is something I've heard you say in lectures, like going and getting an apprenticeship can and will be far more valuable to you in the long run as far as like getting to the point honing a skill getting a career and you know taking it and building on it like i got way more out of working for fausto and eric and dustin and keith than i did in the four years i spent in college like trying to decide where i'm going with it and you know like trying to decide what lane to run down yeah and that's hard too like deciding where to where to where to spend it like who do i want to intern with what do i want to learn about you know But for me, I, I definitely can always say that to someone who's young and trying to figure out where they want to go with their art, that like right. the practical experience of print time and think yeah. was more valuable right. than the education I paid a lot of money for and spent paying back those loans forever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about the Silly Pink Bunnies, because that's the first stuff that I saw. It feels like you brought that from New York when you came to San Francisco, but it's like something that's... I mean, there was a bunch of Dons here at the show last night. You're like a little cult. <laughs> yeah, it uh, wasn't supposed to be and isn't exactly a cult, no, but it is. It's a little more family than it is culty, to be yeah, fair, at this age. Uh, that's a better way to put it. <laughs> I mean, how many cults make it 30 years? You know what I mean? Those things kind of grow and burst uh, and explode. It's I mean, been 30 years. Uh, huh? it's, 28, uh, it's 28 this close. Easter. Uh, it'll wow. be 30 in 2021. Yeah. But in 1991... Uh, when I was in high school, uh, the local newspaper ran an article about gang activity in our city. Uh-huh. And Saratoga may or may not have gang activity today, sure. but in 1991, it certainly didn't. And it was yeah. one of those drama pieces, newspaper okay. guys write to scare old people. And sure. my friends and I, they, they wrote, you know, the guys that hang out in the parking lot of this pizza place are a gang. And oh, the geez. guys that hang out at the skate park are a gang. And we were like, what? we're a gang? Wow. Like, holy shit, if we're a gang, we're the meanest gang out of all these gangs. Yeah. And so originally it was just uh, my best friend Mark coined it. It was like the Silly Pink Bunnies. We're a mean gang, you know, like as if to say like if there's gangs here, we are certainly the most mean. So fuck off. Yeah. And that's kind of where the whole thing started. That's cool. At the same time, I was influenced by like super early street campaigns, like Shepherd's sure. first uh, Andre I was stickers. I because yeah, Shepherd's thing was really influential among the skate community. Even when you like sparking, so, like oh, so, I can just do my own thing. Even, I mean, at the time where there were other things like it, like, you Absolutely know, things that Shepard was equal. I mean, Rhode sure. Island's not that far away from where I lived at those years. And, but his were starting to come north, and I didn't know what it was even. 
Like I think at a time I, where I remember seeing those and not knowing what it was and just being like, oh, I didn't either. Who doesn't like Andre Brad sticker? You know, like yeah, weird. And so I think <laughs> the Silly Pink Bunnies started initially as that in my hometown, and then when I moved west, uh, I was freaked out and like you know I tried to use it as a larger identity than who sure. I was. I was terrible at graffiti, yeah. but I loved it. You know. No, that's the thing. Like that's that's why I asked because that's what we were seeing. You know, that was like your moniker. You know, it was your thing, and we all knew it was your thing, and it just it, it evolved into this, this. You know, at the same time that I moved to San Francisco, uh, other dudes like my friend Chase Lustig moved here, and like some like all of our friends started to grow up and like bounce. So what started in high school was like seven or eight, and then eventually by the time we all moved away, there's probably twenty five of us in the capital district. You know, like a, a little gang. Yeah. Uh, those twenty five dudes spread. Yeah. And they made 10 friends, and then they made 10 friends, and, yeah. you know, 30 years later, it's kind probably like somewhere... Kind Exactly. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, similar. And, and similar in the fact that this was, like, skateboarding mainly yeah. in its infancy. Yeah. But, like, everybody that skates has a friend that doesn't who rules. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't exclusive. Sure. Like, you yeah. didn't... not If you didn't skate, it wasn't, like, just because it was a skater yeah. gang, it didn't mean we didn't allow other people to be in sure. it. Sure, sure. Um, and it just kind of grew from there, and I think... For me, uh, when I got to California, I used it as a security blanket yeah. to be like, I know I'm really shitty at graffiti, but there's a ton of me, so like, don't get mad about it, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and I kind of made it to seem like what I was doing was larger than just me. It seemed that way. Because I, you know, it was all I had. Yeah. I didn't grow up with a super huge family, and so that right. family of people I'd left in New York was like my mom, my sister, my grandmother, but yeah. mostly this like pack of dudes I grew up skating with. Right, all right. So... How did your like fine art uh, life develop? Was that mostly after your tenure at Sync? Did you kind of pick up on the fine art uh, track versus freelance track more or less? I think it was it's a combination of things as I look back on it. Like so, like I said, Slap had started to get my work out there, like outside of San Francisco, and. I started to get weird little, like, I did some group shows, and I did a group show in New York, and I did one in L.A., and I got invited to do a couple in Europe, and so then I was like, okay, I'm not just going to, like, focus strictly on San Francisco. I'll, like, concentrate on some of these opportunities outside the city and try and build a little bit of a following, and simultaneously with that, the Internet's starting to happen, and people in San Francisco are starting to spend money really irresponsibly at what, what, you know, kindly everyone looks back on as the dot-com boom, and, like, it affected me. Like, I was selling art in weird places for not a lot of money. It wasn't like, you know, I knew what it was. It was like stuff I was making in the spare time when I wasn't working at my full-time skateboard job, but I could smell something in the air. And, like, those things kind of culminated. I think I always was motivated to keep doing it, even when, I mean, it still isn't, like, I do it because it's something I want to do. I do it because it's something, like, I always thought would be, how I imagine myself when I'm older is like, oh, I'd, you know, do drawings and make prints and make paintings and have shows and that's how I'll live. Yeah. And it isn't entirely how I make a living, but it is, I think, the thing I enjoy the most. Huh. There's no direction. There's no like, like if it sucks, it sucks. If it rules, it rules. It's like I sat down and focused on that and made it no, with good intent. I like you know? the freedom of the, the you know, the, the fine art, you know, paradigm of just like just doing what comes from your heart. And if it sells, it sells. And if it doesn't, oh, well, I, I still needed to make that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it, it seems like you just started getting opportunities internationally, much like I did, even from the same people sometimes with like Definitely. Antonio Colombo. And is he in Milan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a huge fan of both of ours. Yeah. He's an awesome guy. He's a huge guy. supporter. He's a 
fun dude, didn't he? Yeah, very. Yeah, yeah I like him a lot. Um, and you just kind of would roll with those opportunities as you could, huh? Just travel around. And but even back, like, like, I think always, because of those weird, like, entryway opportunities, like, between the Art Institute and the, like, skateboard background, I've always really, 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 really loved to balance the, like, I don't want to just try and live in galleries and I don't want to just like try and work in the commercial illustration world. Smart one feeds right. the other. Like one yeah. fully feeds the other. I feel the same. I'm constantly presented and I, I can see it in your stuff too. It's like sometimes you work with somebody and you're asked to draw something weird that you would never draw or I'm like, oh, I don't want that to look like that other thing I did so I'll draw it differently this time to like make this more for this project or whatever. And that's not something creatively when you're just on your own feeding your own imagination to build bodies of work that are purely imaginative or driven by something yeah. you've read or something you've seen or a movie or a friend yeah. or whatever makes this stuff happen. Yep. Like commercial illustration forces you to draw weird unicorns well, and was, shit you uh, wouldn't normally draw, you know? That's what the skateboard business was great at. And you what I got out of that job would come in and give you this list you. of weird shit that you oh had to draw. Oh my god, and, some picture from a cup or a, from a magazine or a painting they found in somebody's garage. Or, and I still love that. Like Jesus. I like the challenge of someone coming yeah. to me and being like, we want you to draw like our log cabin and yeah. we want it to be kind of inspired by a bird that sounds like a cheeseburger. And you're just like, right. what? Yeah, uh, no, I know. And, I, and then I, you figure it out. Well, and, and, and like, you know, yeah, dude, sometimes you belt it out of the base. park and sometimes it just looks weird as shit, but I, I like the... I give up sometimes on clients like that too or I'll just be like, no, bro, I sat here and tried to sketch for three hours and I cannot come up with a fucking thing for your logo, dude. I'm going to pass you on to my homie. I, I don't know. I fight those mother... Like, I had one over the, that, uh, the, the A-frame cottage with the bird that yeah. sounds like... That was actually a thing I had to do over the, <laughs> over the holidays and, like, I fought yeah. that thing until I got it. Like, the people yeah. were really happy in the end, but, like... Tattooing was like that, too. People would come with... Like, I want you to interpret my dream into my body. I don't know how like, you guys do that. Okay. That's the one that I have never even tiptoed yeah. at. Like, I just... I couldn't... You're, you like tattoos. Oh, I, I'm, yeah, yeah, but I think, I think having friends, tattoos. like, super young that were, like, you know... No, I did, too. I, I think getting to know the too. grime, like, in the 90s when he was, like, my neighbor that I skated with and yeah. watched his trajectory, like... Yeah. I just always had so much respect for the few people I had met in that world that were right. recognized internationally for it yeah. that I was always like, no fucking way, you know? Like, him and Marcus and, like, yeah. some of the guys I got tattooed by back in the yeah. day were so influential. That, tattoos like, by A-list people. When I was young as fuck and they did yeah. it for reasonable amounts of money. Right. Again, right. a huge, huge, huge influence in San Francisco at that time. Yeah. Especially by, like, line-driven artwork. Well, just as much as any other art scene in San Francisco, tattooing is one of those big ones. But something I think... There's a whole culture around it, you know? But similar to, like, the... You know, like, what the Hate Street Art Center features, like, a lot of that, like, uh, Rick Griffin, Victor yeah. Musco... like psychedelic. All the psychedelic rock poster art that was, you know, not something I came to San Francisco, but for something I... Much like tattooing, I knew about it, yeah. but I didn't know what scene there was in San Francisco waiting for me to learn about. Yeah. And I think I took, like, the Fillmore poster stuff and, like, the tattoo guys, and, like, that was something that I really soaked in that I didn't even show up to learn about. It was just everywhere in the 90s and you had no choice but to recognize You're how right. many incredible tattoo guys there were and to learn about Ed Hardy and like all that stuff was like in my down the block from my school you know yeah so no, it was the same for me when I was working at Think you know and I would you know they'd come at me with something and I'd think oh yeah some Rick Griffin lettering you know and uh oh man you know that dude's incredible and, uh, whatever yeah yeah 
Yeah, all that stuff was influential for sure. Rick Griffin had a huge, huge, huge influence on me. Like learning about that and just kind of learning that like his whole neck of the woods was North Beach, you know, like while I was in school and I was just like, man, this isn't, I think that that's a lot of why I have such a connection to my neighborhood, I think was partially because I went to school there, but partially as I got older to realize how much epic creative shit had happened there, you know, like between Coppola and Lucas and Diego and Frida and like, you know, Kerouac and Ginsburg and like, just, you know, there's a lot of yeah. Ed Hardy and fucking, you know, the entire, yeah. that Lyle whole Tuttle Lyle right Tuttle there. for sure. Um, yeah. That whole neck of the woods has like a really, really layered history of all different sorts of creative. Right Janis Joplin, you know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's part of the reason I think I've always had a magnetism to it is not that I, I would like to respectfully carry that flag if, you know what I mean? Like. I'm happy to be no, there, trying like to be the, as creative and as crafty as the possible. Because like, large wants you to be the poster man for that neighborhood. Not it, necessarily, but even if they're tired like, of hearing me say it, like I'm still making the effort way. while I can. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we were talking uh, yesterday about how much it's changed too. Like that whole North Beach neighborhood. There's all those like strip clubs and liquor stores and stuff, and they're just kind of dying. Like people just don't yeah. care to go to those kinds of uh, businesses so much anymore you know i'm curious to see how it changes and your place in that you know i have really high hopes for it in the sense that like you know broadway even previous to carol dota and the era in the 60s of the topless everything and you know and the bottomless shortly thereafter that like literally changed you know like strip clubs all over the planet immediately like the 60s and north beach is responsible for that but even previously like Broadway was like the center of uh, entertainment on the West Coast. It had some of the nicest like clubs and singers and performances. Yeah, two shops. Oh man, just like a, a wonderful sales. history of entertainment that now Broadway has been whittled down to these very, 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 very tired strip clubs. And no, no offense to any of them. I know a lot of people that work at them. Like yeah. they still look rad. Yeah. Unfortunately, they just aren't thriving, and Broadway's not thriving. And yeah. for a city that is literally one third more than Manhattan, to think we have a neighborhood that's that historic. And that beautiful, not just the signage, but the history and the fucking stink of the place, yeah. that it's just going to sit there and be hollowed out and like yeah. just be like a closed-down amusement park. That's weird, huh? And I, oh, man, it's, heart, it's heartbreaking. My friends own a restaurant called Naked Lunch, which is right in the middle of it that used to be Enrico's, which Enrico yeah. Banducci was the man in the middle of I remember Enrico's. all of North Beach. and like uh, date spot. Man, and it's yeah. just like <laughs> it had a, it has an outdoor patio. If anyone's in San Francisco, that Herb Kane in the '70s, who was a legendary local writer, called the best outdoor place for a cocktail in the city. I mean, the view is literally downhill to the Coppola Building, the Sentinel, and uh, the Transamerica Building. It's just this wonderful, like, shocking well. perspective because you're on a hill looking down at these really tall buildings. And yeah, um, but my, I've been I've spent the last decade in my friend's place, just literally watching one door after the other on Broadway close and. Ten years, ago, ten years ago, there was still barrack. Ten years ago, no, no, not entirely. Broadway. I mean, it's more there, but that's the thing. Every time I go back to San Francisco, <coughs> I come around the corner to go to one of my favorite places, and it's gone. Every time I go back, and it's just, it's all over the town, as far as I'm concerned. I realize that it's a lot more in North Beach, you know? It's like I can remember being on Valencia and being like, where am I? I was, a, I was a little high. <laughs> I had to like literally walk down the street and look at the, look at the corner at the street signs because I thought I was in the marina because I didn't recognize a single one of the businesses on the whole block. And we used to 
hang out down there all the time. It shouldn't have been a, a trippy thing for me at all. But yeah, it's like if you don't own your building there, you know, eventually it's gone. It's going to be done. Unless you have support, I think, karmically like you have where people will hook you up. And or a, loyal, or a, loyal, up, a you know? loyalty and a desire to still be there. You know what sure, I mean? Like I think for sure. me it's that uh, to me it is important for me right now in my life and maybe someday when I can't afford it it won't be. But I think the key to being there no matter what you're doing at the moment is the desire to grow and change with it. Because let's face it, yes. the city has also been, has always been very tumultuous, filled with a lot of change, sure. a lot of instant growth. I mean, part of the problem you have with only being seven miles across and being deeply brilliant and influential, and influential to the like evolution of humans. I mean, yeah, the television was right. invented there. Video games yeah. were invented there. Like mm. the internet, sure. Apps, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But like motherfuckers came there to find gold and real yeah. estate got pretty hairy then too. And then we had yeah. massive earthquakes and real estate got pretty hairy then too. It is unfortunately just in one of those fucking dick wrinkles that is a moment in the city's history that isn't rad. That's what happened in Manhattan. But it will right? for sure ride that out and become fucking amazing again well, and invent some yeah, other thing that changes the world. Like, city. no fucking way, man. And it yeah. may just get to a point where you see it as intolerable and you don't want to be there anymore. And that's rad. But to be like, it's done or it's fucked. I mean, that's just, it's that's like talking good. about an ex-girlfriend like she wasn't good, good to you. You know, like it's San Francisco's not. just in a moment. Yeah. And it's transitioning into the next big moment in San Francisco's prideful well, history. Like and it's that's part of the thing that bumps me out is that those old businesses that I loved that were mom and pop businesses are being, you know, taken over by corporate businesses or businesses catering to rich kids. And the taquerias that we always loved are closing. You not know, all because of them. right next door is a place that'll sell the same taco for $12 with a $15 margarita and the kids that are making all the money in that neighborhood will go there and I think and it like breaks in, my heart as, a, thing, as well bro. like Listen, I, I man. love that city so much in, but I think just, uh, I think in order to uh, be able to like in any relationship where there are heartbreaking elements to that relationship yeah. You have to decide, like, am I enough in love with this place where the heartbreaking closures and the people who've moved and the things that weave the fabric for you, if enough strands have been pulled out where you don't, you know, you can't find that love for it anymore, then it, yeah. you know, it is time to part ways. But I think the key to being there at the moment is the positivity and the understanding to know that unfortunately for me, I just happened to move there at the most tumultuous quarter century since the fucking gold rush. Sure. And if I want to hang on... I've got to try and change and meld with it and like accept yeah. that my spots are going to close because you know what? I would like to be that old man standing on the corner to be like, and at this location, Mike Giant had his first, you know, like, yeah. like yeah, I want to yeah. be that guy because yeah. I have a debt of well, gratitude to that place. You know what I mean? Like, you're special. I mean, that's what no, it no, I'm stupid. <laughs> I don't like change and I don't want to run, but like, I also like, no, but that, it's that's, gratitude. That's just it. You, yeah. I feel like you're such a great ambassador for that place. I can't think of anybody that loves it more. Ah, people who were born and raised and still putting up with all this shit somewhere they don't want to leave. Like there are, I know, I I know tons of people that love it more. I I think mine is more like, uh, you can't, no matter how hard you try, you can't be born and raised somewhere. And I, I've gotten so fortunate there. Like just like one weird you know, like like skating with Dustin and dudes like that where it eventually got me this job. And the, like, yeah. I just had this amazing trajectory in a place where I was not talented enough to be doing what I'm doing yeah. if it wasn't for the fact that I constantly turn around and give the place a hug and say thanks and run back into the restaurant and leave a bigger tip. And, you know, like, like yeah. I'm just genuinely still 25 years later so, like, yeah. 
I don't know. I don't know exactly how I'm still allowed to be there. Like, like you, you really built a relationship with that place. Like, I, I can't think of anybody that has the hookups at more restaurants there than you do. Which isn't because I'm just hungry and chubby. You know what I mean? Like, a lot of that is because you, you get a relationship. You did that. Yeah, but you get the relationship with those places. That's more about them feeding you. It's more like when I go in there. You know, You've done something at, for them. Though. Well, but when I go back in there, when I get home, it's not like they're going to be like, dude, how was the show in fucking Denver? Like, yeah. you know, I don't have a very big family and I never did. It's part of the reason yeah. this gang is so like relevant and important oh, in my okay. life. And I think in the city that like, you know, I found myself very alone a number of times over my adult life. Sure. The city itself is kind of like my family and those, those neighbors way. and those people I live by that don't give a rat's ass about my drawings. They just like me as a dude. And that's great. That's a that's a that's a thing that's that has a lot to do with my like core love of the place and the people yes. that also love it and the yeah. people who are from there and the people who bitch about it and like yeah. I'm just that guy standing there trying to be the glass half full to yeah. remind everybody that we all just kind of have to enjoy it while we're there, you know, cuz you might get the boot, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. One day you might decide it's time to leave and I'd rather remember it as like good times and positive than that never ne never ending echo of people being like it was better when it was and i miss my that, and not that those okay. arguments aren't 100 percent relevant they are but in order for me to stay there right now and move on through some like that personal tragedy i gotta stay not only positive about change in the city but like yeah. i'm gonna work even harder to do more civic things over the next few years cool. just you to push should. myself through even still being there like yeah. if i've lost all these things that were deeply important to me because i'm holding on so tight to this like crazy city that everybody's like oh it's it's fucked you know like it's doomed it's crazy it's too expensive it's too dangerous I don't think so. oh man that's, that's just it there's I, headlines constantly talking about how it's it must unfixable be and... for you I, I i get that and i'm not one of those people that wants it to be like it was mm -mm. you know you can still go to san francisco and have a fucking and celebrate the awesome pieces it of its awesome. history that made it what it is, you know, even the if the things... Fine arts, you know, I mean, there's just so many rad, rad places. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, there is that part. It's just like... It's having a ripple, little, you know? Those little pieces of it just get pulled away over time. But that happens everywhere. I mean, when I go to Albuquerque, there's places that I loved as a kid that are now closing here and there because it's just a different world. And young people just don't support certain kinds of businesses, you know? And it's just, that's how it goes. Yeah, the way of the world. Yeah. Well, we're almost at an hour and a half. I think uh, we, we covered a lot of cool shit. I hope so. Just to wrap up, if you can, just in a, a, a little few minutes, can you tell me a bit about the pieces that are on the wall in the gallery here? I, I notice a lot of them are like girls' names and like uh, titles for emotions and whatnot and you mentioned i guess on your instagram that this is kind of the work from one of the saddest periods of your life and i still see them as really like uh fun and upbeat and joyful even though i can kind of get the subtext on some of that but what was going on with these ones well first i appreciate that as a compliment from somebody that i admire and i appreciate that you looked at them that like Oh, I looked at every single one trying to figure out the story. That's why I'm asking you. Uh, I don't normally draw sad. It's not something I'm that I good know. at. If I were a songwriter, I'm not a guy that writes sad songs. Um, right. I had a kind of a, a very sudden end to a very important friendship at the end of last year. And a, an artist, this guy Travis Millard, who I really admire. Uh, I like Travis. Who's a great... 
just a great friend to me over the years was kind of like, man, you don't really have any choice. You're going to have to figure out a way to draw your way through this. And like kind of motivated me to try and draw some sad, which Travis can draw anything. And to the point about when your client hands you something that you just can't draw or didn't think you could draw. I started to draw sad just because I had a lot of time on my hands and a lot of things to process. And as anybody knows, that spends a lot of time alone drawing. Yeah. It's either a really great or a really terrible way to do it. So uh, I started just trying to see what sad looked like. And at a time that I'd probably never been, and I don't mean to paint this like it's my life is terrible. I'm a very fortunate man. I have a very good life. No, no. I just had a really solid family thing going on that suddenly was disrupted and I didn't know how to get through it or deal with it. And I, you sure. know, got a therapist and tried to get good. more exercise and did good. the things you're supposed to do, yeah, but also sure. felt very sorry for myself and spent a lot of time alone drawing these. Yeah. So for the first six months, I tried to draw like what it felt like or what I imagined, you know, just yeah. like physically drawing things that were just sad. And then yeah. around the first of the year, I'd realized that this, things weren't improving and that I'd spent too much time being sad and forced myself to like get out more and be more social and think outside the box and change my surroundings and change the people I'm hanging around with and make an enormous amount of new female friends because as anyone who's been married for a while knows... Um, I just I had I had disconnected with a lot of my close female friends and had gotten more invested in my wife and my cat and my work yeah, and it just yeah. had become more sort of sheltered off from the world. So yeah. I began to make new friendships with women. And the second half of the the first first twelve drawings were really just like pretty much like September or October until cool. December, and then January until the show. I basically just tried to do drawings about interesting progressive young women in San Francisco, or actually of all ages in San Francisco, where I would ask the same series of questions that were, you know, like, uh, what animal do you see yourself as? What animal do you imagine other people see you as? Almost in like a sharpening my tools, like cheesy 70s pickup line, but these relationships weren't romantic. Like I pursued these women uh, as friends to rebuild like strong female energy around me. As I mentioned earlier, like I was raised by my mother and my sister and my grandmother. And in the period of seven years that I was deeply in love and married, I just didn't have a ton of women around me other than my wife. And with her influence removed from my day-to-day -day studio work, I just started meeting and spending more time around these really interesting women. And uh, yeah, the, the last 12 drawings are all, you know, studies based on those relationships and those friendships. Fuck yeah. Great way to wrap it up. Perfect timing. Thanks so much for talking to me. Man, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks right, a lot for doing the show. Oh, I yeah. appreciate it. Thanks,